reminded me when I was a kid, uh, there was this white American guru that I used to go see sometimes. And he would uh, install darshan, this sort of Hindu, non-dual. And he would start, like the first 10 minutes, you'd be sitting there, eyes open, and he would just smile. <laughs> really creepy. <laughs> kind of make eye contact with some people. He called himself, know me. I am the guru, know me. Some sex scandal later, I think. So here we are at the conclusion of your third full day of silent practice, silent intent. When people ask me about these retreats, I always refer to them as silent intensive meditation retreats. And um, it really feels like that to me, the work that's being done here, it's intense. The, the noble silence, not having eye contact, the schedule of sitting and walking. Um, I think somebody said, maybe it was spring this morning, somebody was, I forget who it was, but that meditation as an extreme sport. I had somebody in an interview yesterday who had a major meditation injury, <laughs> black and blue perhaps broken bones uh, in a foot from the foot having fallen asleep and standing up and <laughs> and uh, you know extreme meditation <laughs> intensive practice Of course, the, having sat in interviews with people yesterday and today, and there's such varied experience, and there's not one arc that happens, but common these first couple of days to be dealing with uh, a lot of sleepiness. Busy lives, fast-paced lives we lead, most of us, come into a retreat and... Um, feel the kind of momentum of a fast-paced life screeching to uh, sitting and walking all day, to silence and slowness and having 30 minutes, 45 minutes to enjoy this meal and the eating meditation. And uh, really a different pace of life here in the, in the retreat. So a lot of sleepiness, totally common, 
hard staying awake, getting up early, all of the effort, mental effort to pay attention, to connect our awareness with the present and to try to sustain awareness with the breath, with the body, with the footsteps, with the eating, with all of our activities. And also um, common to feel bored, to feel uh, the kind of detoxification from all of the entertainment that we're used to, all of the uh, information and um, pleasant experiences that we choose a lot, and this kind of simple not much going on here. Not much entertainment except for your own mind. And uh, you're not supposed to be paying attention to that. <laughs> Start turning the desert into a source of entertainment, watching the cacti like it's your television. <laughs> I got to get out there for the sunset. It's the best show on all day. Sunrise. So the Buddha, just after his awakening, said that in order to walk this path from the normal, ordinary suffering of, the, of humanity, the suffering that we're all born into, the difficult, stressful, the life of grief and sorrow, and in order to walk from the norm to awakening, which is considered abnormal, rare and precious, available to all living beings, but uh, something that takes quite a bit of effort. And one of the ways that he referred to it, many of you know, I've been talking about it in this way for a long time now, is that what we have to do is we have to go against the norm, against the stream. That it's normal as you come into retreat to just uh, feel sleepy and feel restless and be filled with craving and filled with aversion and all of the doubts, uh, what are referred to, I'm going to talk about tonight, the five hindrances are normal. To have your mind occupied with craving is normal for human beings. To have your body and mind uh, filled with sloth and torpor and laziness and procrastination and avoidance and that's totally normal. That's uh, how human beings are wired and to be restless and anxious and uh, not have a great tolerance for calm, for peace, for quiet, to not quite know how to enjoy the empty desert. It's normal to not know how to do that very well without intensive, meditative, long-term training. And that what's being asked of us as we come on retreat, as we come to the Buddha's Dharma, the path and teachings, the truth directly experienced within ourselves, is to not just settle for the norm, 
as to not just surrender to the mind's bad habits and the body's reactive survival instinct, but to choose intentionally, volitionally, to be mindful, to train uh, what the Buddha referred to as the monkey mind. That's what we're doing. That's what you've been doing. Taming the monkey mind, training it, bringing it back a thousand times, back to the present, back to the body, back to the heart, back to the here and now, acknowledging that's just a memory, that's just a plan, come back. I feel like a lot of the first instructions I've been thinking about for a long time, the first instructions about breath and body awareness, where we're encouraged to ignore the thinking mind before we open the instructions to including the mind as part of your uh, field of awareness. That first thing we're learning to do is break our addiction to thinking. This identification and way that we're just uh, strung out on planning just completely addicted to the past and the future. And the thought world of fantasy and uh, the world of hope and fear. And that um, a sober relationship, a non-addicted, a (laughs) drug-free relationship is mindfulness of the present body sensations, emotions, here now, not in the delusion that the mind is spinning the story, but in the reality of your physical, the reliable reality of the physical. This is hard work. This is, uh, as the Buddha said, it's it goes against the stream. It's not, uh, it's not easy to train your mind. It's not easy to be mindful, to be awake. That when we bring mindfulness in this process of sitting and walking and when we bring loving kindness, that uh, we see these five common, totally normal, they're known as the five hindrances, uh, also known as the five totally ordinary things that everyone experiences, um, but that make it difficult, that hinder our liberation, that hinder our ability to see clearly, to be present. And the first one, the big one, maybe they're all big, but the first one, which is also the second noble truth, of Buddhism, which is that of craving for pleasure, lusting for pleasure, attachment to pleasure, fantasizing about pleasure. The ordinary thought that says something like, I would be happy if. And that is almost, if you look at that delusion around what you think will make you happy, isn't it almost always if it was more pleasant? If my body didn't ache so much from sitting, then I'd be happy. If the food was 
more spicy or more salty or more, something more pleasant for you, then I'd be happy. If they actually had dinner, then I'd be happy. <laughs> or dessert. OK, the salad's cool, but how about a cheesecake? <laughs> then I'd be happy. That craving for pleasure, that persistent, totally normal, part of our wiring, part of our survival instinct, but that is constantly giving these thoughts and, and uh, generated by this body, human body, normal. I want it to be different than it is. I would be happy if it were different than it is. Sometimes this first hindrance uh, on retreat can come as, as actual lust, not just craving for pleasant, can come as craving for pleasant spiritual experience or food or more comfort or if only the person sitting next to me didn't breathe so loud. Or... But also it can come in the sexual lust, a lot of sexual fantasies. You're sitting here, you're trying to just be in the body in, and your body is actually producing these uh, sexual cravings. Fantasies start to arise. You might find yourself indulging in, reminiscing in the best sex you ever had. Then I'd be happy. If they were only here now. Or sometimes on retreat, people start to have lusting experiences for other people on the retreat that they've never even met. Kate was talking last night about somebody who said, uh, they spent their whole retreat checking out everybody's ass. But what, oh, I forget how she said, booty watching. That's the politically correct. Uh, I was booty watching, but just lusting, that, that hindrance of, of lust, which is distracting from, I mean, it's, it's happening here and now, but it's just, oh, I'd be so happy if I could just touch that booty. <laughs> if I could possess it. <laughs> they even came up for a term for falling in love on retreat with people that you haven't met. Most of you have heard about the Vipassana romance. On Vipassana retreat, making up this whole fantasy. You could spend days of your retreat falling in love. All of the stories about what he's like, about what she's like the children we'd have, <laughs> the grandchildren. The hindrance of this very normal, we're just wired like that. We, we like sex. We're born in, as sexual beings. It's, we crave pleasure. It's our survival instinct. And if we don't relate to it, if we take it too personally, it can distract us from the present. It can let us live in a world of fantasy, in a world of craving, and we can really miss the precious moment-to-moment -moment reality that we're here to see because we're just indulging in fantasy, sexual craving. It's normal. Everybody has it. You might find pornographic images normal. It's part of your practice. 
might be more romantic than, than pornographic. I don't know. The flip side of the next hindrance and the flip side, I think, of, of craving and lust and the thought that I'd be happy if something were more pleasant is the likewise feeling, really seductive thought that says, I'd be happy if something would go away. The aversion and ill will and resentment and sometimes that strong hatred that can be about the little things on retreat. It can be about, um, I hate this cushion, or I hate this schedule, or I hate that teacher, or I hate these other, I'd be happy if these, all these other people weren't in my way. It's this, like a retreat is like rush hour on the freeway. All these people are in my way. I'm just trying to get out of here. Just trying to do some walking meditation. <laughs> Everybody's in the slow lane. <laughs> and or um, the, then it be, can become, when we talk about the, the Vipassana Vendetta, you're on retreat, and it's not that you're falling in love, but you've got some enemies. I don't like the dish guy. <laughs> I don't like the person sitting next to me. That one cook gave me a dirty look. That lady keeps stealing my walking path. And ill will towards this right, can, right here in retreat. And of course, there's the other ones, the resentments that we bring with us, the stories, the old fights, the old pains that we're still uh, holding on to that can keep us from being in the present. Not knowing how to meet unpleasant experiences with compassion. Not knowing yet, or being skilled at tolerating unpleasant people, places, smells, sights, and instead, instead meeting it with that survival instinct that just says, I got to get rid of it. One woman in an interview this afternoon talked about a lifetime of fear and hatred of cockroaches. The hindrance of hating vermin. I guess they're not vermin, what are they? Insects. And that through this practice, there was a shift, I think yesterday or today, where for the first time in her life, she said, they're as afraid as I am. This shift from hatred of the cockroach and fear and loathing or whatever it is, to seeing a cockroach in her room, wherever it was, and having compassion for it, and seeing it as a living being, a sentient being, worthy of care. 
worthy of compassion. That's just a fear being, terrified little bug. So here we are on retreat and the mind and body giving craving ideas and aversion uh, thoughts and feelings and what we like and what we want and what we don't want and all of the ideas about I'd be happy if. Or met with the sleepiness, the sloth and the torpor of um, if I could just stay awake. I'm just falling asleep all of the time. If I could just sleep, a if the morning bell was just an hour later, or if there was just a little bit less sitting meditation, or whatever we're blaming our sleepiness for, on. And there are two different kinds of sleepiness. There is the sloth and torpor and sleepiness of really being tired physically. You get here the first couple days, busy life, you may need a little extra sleep. You might really just be physically tired. And the cure for that is sleep. Sleep actually works to cure sleepiness. <laughs> but there's another kind, even after a great night's sleep, several great nights sleep, you're, you know, and you're getting that nap, everything, but still you hit the cushion and you're being mindful and you're starting to see clearly and you're working with the cravings and you're working with the aversions, you're meeting it with compassion, with non-attachment, but still uh, finding yourself nodding, falling asleep. And this is a different kind of, like, more like a psychological or a mental sleepiness a sloth and torpor of the mind, a drowsiness of the mind that's not just based on physical tiredness, that's more like a resistance, um, a mental resistance to seeing the truth. You're getting close to something important. And what are, maybe the ego, I don't know what it is, some part of the mind doesn't like you seeing the truth. Some part of the mind, some part of our confused being feels, feels threatened by you becoming more compassionate, by you becoming less attached, less identified, and it puts you to sleep. And I always think of um, the uh, yellow brick road and the Wizard of Oz and that journey to enlightenment that Dorothy is on, trying to get home, right? And this is the whole of it is, Actually, you just there's no place like home. <laughs> Battery. As she's getting close to, is that okay? As she's getting close to Oz and the whole crew, the lion and the tin man and 
Toto and they're getting close to Oz, close to finding some truth, some something. Of course, eventually what they find out is that it's just a scared little guy behind a curtain, which is actually what you find out. That's actually the secret teaching. <laughs> That's what happens on retreat. You go on retreat and you're like, okay, big, I'm going to become a Buddha. And you see, oh, the whole thing is just run by the scared little ego mind. I was believing it. It was projected as the Oz, the wizard. And it was just my mind the whole time. But anyways, right before they get there, the poppy field, getting too close, everyone take a nap. Knock you out sometimes. So knowing that that's part of also what we're dealing with, the sleepiness. People have already said, you know, you can uh, work with it intentionally by standing up, by taking deep breaths, by doing some walking practice to enliven. A cup of tea helps sometimes. Some things to give, uh, some extra energy. But also, it's just part of the process, not expecting it to go away completely. It's just going to be part of your practice of awakening is going to be falling asleep. It's strange, right? But part of being in meditation and training your mind is going to be that sometimes your mind just shuts down, just turns off. And, uh, and you find yourself like this. One of my favorite teachers, Ajahn Amaro, said, you know, and if you, if you want to play with it a little bit and you don't resist the sloth and the torpor and that, it can be incredibly pleasant. <laughs> and you just say, oh, heaviness, nodding, falling, <laughs> floating. Ah. He called it poor man's nirvana. <laughs> not quite the real thing, but uh, not a lot of suffering as long as you're not hating it. Not quite insight either, but part of the process. Or the other side of that coin, which is restlessness, anxiety, mental agitation and worry, taking your attention away from the present, away from the body, or the body being so uncomfortable because of the restlessness, anxiety that you just can't have a hard time tolerating. That wanting to get up and run out of the room or do anything but continue to walk slowly. It said that the most debilitating of all of the hindrances is the last one. I said that the first one was the big one because I think it's so pervasive, the craving. 
But it said as far as hindering us, like we can, as long as you're uh, committed, you can continue to work with all of the cravings that arise. It's just part of it. And all of the aversions that arise, the restlessness and the sleepiness, it's just part of having a human mind and body. You, you learn to work with those uh, experiences as they come and go. Uh, but the, the fifth hindrance, doubt, uh, is considered to be the most dangerous because it's the one that will talk you out of practice. It's the one that has been talking to you a little bit this week that's saying, maybe you should go home. Perhaps you're not cut out for this. Maybe it's not really the right time to be on retreat. Uh, I should have gone to Hawaii. I spent $1,200 on this. Those voices of doubt in the practice, and they can come both as um, about the path itself. Perhaps I should be a Tibetan Buddhist. This Vipassana shit. No ritual, no wine, no dinner. Wrong path. Or, or um, something, something more exciting. There's got to be more to it than just this. So it can be in the path itself, the doubt in, have I chosen the right thing? Is, the, is Buddhism reliable? Is this the right path? Does this lead to transformation? Is it working? And at times, I'm sure you have total confidence and you're like, absolutely, this is really working. But doubt is those moments where the mind catches you and you have just done something really unskillful or just got caught in something, some mind place that hurts. And, and then you just say, it's not working at all. I'm worse than ever. <laughs> this just doesn't work. I've been doing it for three weeks. This doesn't work. Or the self-doubt. Not that the path doesn't work. The path absolutely works. I look up there. I see these wonderful teachers. And I know it worked for them. And I have confidence in what Jack says. And uh, I, I know it worked for them. And probably everyone else here it will work for, except for me. So it's not doubt in the path, but doubt in our own capacity, in our own confidence, in our own uh, the possibility of our own transformation, our own liberation. And often doubt comes up like that. If we take it personal, if we believe it, you're in big trouble. You might stop practicing if you believe it, really believe it. If you just see it as another thought, as part of the process, if you say, of course, doubt. Big surprise, of course there's doubt. And you don't take it so personal, then it's not a problem at all. Totally ordinary, just part of what the mind does. 
doubts ourselves, doubts others, if we relate to it, and I think that that's really the key with all of the hindrances, with all of the difficulties, with all of the experiences that we have in retreat and really in, in our lives. Are we relating to what's happening or from what's happening? So when lust is arising and craving is arising, can we greet it with saying, oh, good morning, lust. You got up before I did. <laughs> and relating to it. When you catch yourself in that fantasy, in that craving, in that I would be happy if. Relating to it, of course, more craving, naming it. Or relating to the aversion. Having a sense of humor about the people that you're resenting on retreat. It's so ridiculous, isn't it? With all of this, I find a sense of humor and being able to like laugh at yourself a little bit at what the mind does. Like really you're falling in love with somebody you've never spoken to? It's so silly. You hate that person because of the socks they're wearing? <laughs> really? How dare they? Being able to laugh at our own minds a little bit. This is a very, I, I think that spiritual practice is very serious, that meditation retreats are silent, intensive, that it's a serious process, very important, precious opportunity, and important to approach it with, that Jack was saying, loving awareness, kind awareness, patient, gentle, humorous at times. Don't take this mind and body too seriously. It's just a mind and body. I believe that um, if you know the stories of the Buddha's enlightenment and the story of the Buddha's life, that there's this character that accompanies the Buddha and attacks the Buddha at his enlightenment and then accompanies him his whole life all the way to death. This character that they call Mara, that is referred to as Mara. And, and in the mythology and in the stories of, of traditional Buddhism, Mara is um, this being that attacks the Buddha with doubt, attacks the Buddha with lust, attacks the Buddha with hatred, with ill will, uh, with restlessness, with sleepiness, with temptation. It's the five hindrances, obviously. But in the stories, it's personified. Rather than just saying, and then the Buddha had a thought of lust, it says, and then Mara attacked. And Mara's daughters took birth as lust and you know, started dancing naked in front of the Buddha. Rather than just saying, and then the Buddha had a sexual fantasy. <laughs> Mara attacked and his daughters put on a show. The thing about Mara is 
the thing about the hindrances are that even though uh, at the Enlightenment and the Buddha's awakening and Mara attacks with hatred and the Buddha radiates compassion, and this is your job here on Ritri. You are the Buddha, and when ill will attacks, when the hindrance of our job is to learn to meet it with compassion. Of course, that's what we're doing here, trying to become more kind, more compassionate. And the Buddha radiates and the image of spears and arrows as the Buddha's under the Bodhi tree. And he, he transforms it with his loving kindness and his compassion into flower petals that fall around him. And that he meets the pain with compassion. And when lust comes, he is unmoved by it. He's non-attached. He's not addicted to satisfying that craving that has arisen. That thought that I would be happy if doesn't take him away from, he relates to it. Oh, it's just lust, just Mara again. And when doubt comes, and there's that image, not in this one, but many Buddhas you see, and the Buddha's sitting in his hand, one hand is touching the earth. And it's said that that is um, the Buddha's reply to doubt, that when Mara attacks with doubt, and Mara, the last attack, he says, who do you think you are to become enlightened? In this world where everyone is suffering, in this world where everyone is attached and aversive and identified, why do you think you get to be the only Buddha in town? And he touches the earth. And different people have different interpretations of it. Some say that he's saying, because I'm part of this earth, and as an earthling, as part of the four elements, it is our birthright ability to awaken that everyone that's part of this earth has this Buddha nature. Jack was talking about the other night. That it's just because we're a part of, we've taken birth, and it's part of our potential. This four elements has liberation as its possibility. And some say that he's touching the earth for the earth to bear witness to his many, many uh, past incarnations and all of the work that he did that led to this incarnation as Siddhartha. And, um, I've done the work, he's saying touching the earth. I think I prefer the first interpretation. That worthiness is a given. And that ability for liberation is a given. That it is your, um, is your birthright, having taking birth, that you can come to liberation, to happiness, and to freedom. If you relate wisely to these unwise aspects of your mind, to the doubts, to the fears, to the cravings and the aversions. And if you forgive and let go of the old resentments, that uh, happiness is possible in this lifetime. And uh, he vanquishes Mara. He says, I've seen through you. Go away. And Mara sulks off. And I don't know, um, 
But it feels like to me, like the Buddha thought, kind of thought like, yeah, I did it. <laughs> Kicked his ass. Total assassin. I have ended these hindrances in my mind, gone. And the very next day, as the Buddha is sitting and walking in his newfound liberation, Mara comes back. <laughs> and says, hey, Buddha, yeah, yeah, you got enlightened, you won. But don't tell anybody about it, OK? You don't want to go out and teach. You don't want to go, you know, like, just keep it to yourself, all right? Nobody's going to believe you anyways. And again, it's, for me, it's that, that doubt. Even in the newly enlightened Buddha's mind, it still, there's that part of the conditioned mind that says, should I tell anybody about this or should I keep it to myself? Still there. But now the Buddha says, I see you, Mara. I see what you're doing. He relates to that part of the mind that is presenting this fear, this doubt, this insecurity, this uh, lack of confidence, this difficulty with the decision. Now I'm enlightened. What am I going to do with the rest of my life? So I feel like this is both good and bad news for us. Because Mara continues with Buddha his whole life. On his deathbed, Mara is still there. And I take this 100% in my interpretation, and there are different views and opinions about what this means. But my uh, understanding of this is that even enlightenment, even the full awakening, does not end the arising of the hindrances. Does not make those things go away forever. But that what it does for the Buddha is that it perfects his relationship to the mind. And that when these things come, he knows, he's mindful, and he responds with, I see you. I see lust as it's arising. I see fear as it's arising. I see hatred as it's arising. And I now know how to respond in the appropriate way to these things. I respond with compassion. I respond with forgiveness. I respond with non-clinging, non-identification, not taking it so personal. This theme that we're playing with on this retreat of identity, no longer taking birth as I am afraid, and now relating to fear has arisen. It's not who I am. No longer incarnating as I am filled with doubt. I am uh, unsure. I am unconfident. I am unworthy. And relating to, oh, this feeling of unworthiness is arising in my heart and in my mind. Seeing it clearly, relate, having a relationship with our mind and our emotions and our sensations.
Without meditation, I personally think it's impossible to do this. But with meditation, with mindfulness, there's uh, the potential for this kind of radical going against the norm, breaking our addiction and identification and our confused identity with the mind and all of the unwholesome aspects of it as who we are. And the same could be said as far as I'm concerned also with uh, you know, we could give this whole talk about the seven factors of enlightenment, and you don't want to get too identified with those either. You're not only not the hindrances, <laughs> like Jack's story about Ajahn Chah going to his teacher and saying, and I had this experience, and I, you know, became the rainbow body, and I melted into light, and I dissolved, and I was emptiness, and he's, you know, and that teacher just kind of saying, like, don't worry about the experiences. Don't take those on as... Be the one who knows those experiences, who relates to those experiences. You've been having a good time on this retreat. I'm happy for you. You're doing everything right. If you've been struggling and not having such a good time on this retreat, I'm happy for you. You're also doing everything right. This practice is amazing, powerful, but also slow, in my experience. It doesn't often work quickly to change our relationship. Our relationship to Mara, to the hindrances, change slowly, slowly over time. We take them less and less personal. We become more and more skilled at relating to them over the years of our practice. It's each moment there's a choice. And then over the years we become uh, more and more skilled at taking the appropriate choice in each moment. Choosing to let go over and over and over. Choosing to be kind over and over and over. So when you're met with the experience of lust, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, sloth, or doubt, I encourage you to smile at yourself and say, big surprise, this again. Of course. Of course this is happening. Of course there's doubt. Of course I'm restless. It's part of having a human body. Of 
course there's going to be sleepiness at times in the retreat. Smile at it, greet it with a sense of humor, with a I see you, Mara, with, of course, big surprise, and carry on. Let's sit for a moment. Well, you're already sitting. I just mean close your eyes. Bring full attention. Let go of the words. And meet yourself with just a moment of unconditional acceptance. Breathing in. All of the bad habits of mind, accepting ourselves wherever we're at in this process. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.